Greetings and welcome to episode 44 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today our topic comes in the form of a question. This is sort of like uh, playing Jeopardy, right? Uh, the Yamato race, purebred or mongrel? Yamato race, you might be familiar with this term. Usually it's the term that is provided uh, if you want an easy shorthand uh, answer to who are the Japanese. Ah, the Yamato race, that's an ethnic group. It's a racial group. Um, that's the gospel today, the received wisdom. Um, well, I'll spare you all the uh, uh, suspense for the next hour during this podcast episode, and I'll give you the uh, scholarly answer to this question, not the sort of uh, Wikipedia mainstream answer to the question. The answer to whether or not the Yamato race is purebred or mongol is you have to ask different people at different times, and you will get different answers. Okay? It depends on who you ask and when you ask them. Now, what this means um, is that we need to talk a little bit before we get into the details of uh, terms for racial identities during the uh, Japanese Empire and, and before uh, and after. I guess they're going to be talking about the entire uh, uh, span of Japanese history today as far as this goes. Um, we need a little preamble. All right, We need a little disclaimer, as I always give in previous episodes, whenever we need to talk about something that has to do with ethnic identity or identity politics in general. All right. Today, what we're going to be talking about is we're talking about the evolution of racial terms in Japan as they were expressed by educated elites. All right. This is discourse or theory, not lived experience. Lived experience is always very different than what educated elites, those people who have wealth and power, want us to believe about who we are. Okay? I'm going to be giving you an overview of what educated elites wanted the Japanese people and later on non-Japanese subjects to believe about who they were, what your identity was. And whether or not you uh, are a part of the Japanese empire, uh, how you might become a part of the Japanese people, who are the Japanese people, where did they come from, uh, these ideas are in flux. They are always changing. All right. If you go and you read some mainstream uh, 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 encyclopedia entry or uh, a journalist mention of the Japanese race or identity politics or something, you'll always get this very lazy, passive explanation uh, that Japan is like, you know, the most homogenous nation in the world. And it's always been that way. The Yamato race is like 99.7% of the entire population. Um, and this, you know, striking homogeneity uh, will be often used to explain certain uh, uh, things that have happened in Japanese history. Uh, you know, uh, the economic miracle in the 1960s was once explained by the homogenous Japanese race and how lucky they are to not have to deal with ethnic conflict and whatnot. Um, anyways, we'll, we'll tackle all of these things. What we need to start off with is the obligatory disclaimer I give every single time, which is the analogy of a police lineup of naked people, <laughs> right? This is the sort of thing that would get me in trouble um, if I ever sort of did this in public talks, but on a podcast, this is a great way to tackle uh, thorny issues that are very serious, even though I'm laughing about it. All right, um, here's how it goes. If you were to take a bunch of people from across uh, Asia, all right, take uh, two or three people from Japan, two or three people randomly from China, from Korea, uh, let's throw in some from uh, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, maybe throw in some Mongolians in there, put them all in a police lineup, uh, give them all a shower, make sure that, you know, the hair is not styled, there's no makeup on, take off all your glasses, all your clothes, uh, anything that could be used to adorn your body and give it a certain type of appearance. All right. Um, now, put everyone up, uh, stand them in front of a, a police lineup, and I would like you to be able to tell me if you think that you would be able to identify where in Asia these people came from. <laughs> All right. Uh, you couldn't do it. Same thing if you took people from different parts of Europe. Sure, you'd be able to generally say they look like Asians. <laughs> All right. Or if we have people from Europe, you'd say they look like Europeans. And maybe, maybe you'd be able to say, um, all right, these people look like they may have come from North Asia or South Asia or Central Asia. 
you know, large regions you'd be able to maybe identify. Just like in Europe, you might be able to tell, oh, this is probably someone from Scandinavian region. Uh, this is probably someone from Southern Europe, maybe Italy, maybe Spain, uh, you know, something like that. Okay? But there is no way that you would be able to identify with anything beyond 50-50 certainty um, that that person is Japanese. Okay? So much of what we think is race is uh, 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 some sort of cultural attribute that we have uh, deliberately put on our bodies. Okay? Uh, your hairstyle. So much of what you think, oh, you know, I can easily identify that person as being from Japan. Um, it's not because of their biological features. The biological features only give them away as generally being from Asia, maybe East or maybe North Asia. Okay. Uh, beyond that, whatever you think is Japanese about them is the makeup. It's the type of glasses they're wearing. It's the way they style their hair. Um, you know, it's the way that maybe uh, they do their eyebrows. It's the type of jeans that they wear, the type of shoes they might wear, uh, all of that sort of stuff. The way they walk, their mannerisms. Um, you know, this is what actually we often think that's race. That's culture. And culture is something that changes over time. Okay? Uh, most of what we think of race actually exists only in our mind, and it's things that we put on our bodies, um, and they're cultural attributes. Okay? I often like to say, if you've listened to this whole podcast, you can skip over this because I'm saying the same thing, but some people are going to start right here with Japan and they never have heard anything else. Um, race is a situational state of mind. Uh, here, here's a shocker. There is no such thing as race. <laughs> it doesn't exist. All right. We invented this concept in our minds. Yes, there are biological differences, very superficial biological differences. Uh, bone structure, you know, cheekbones can be different, uh, you know, on sort of a continental or regional basis. Um, there's, there's no denying that. Uh, certain facial bone structures can be different. The uh, pigment in skin, obviously, uh, can be very different. Um, hair, hair color can be different. Hair consistency can be different. Eye color can be different. Uh, these sorts of things. Okay? Um, that's not race. It's, at least it's not race in the sense that uh, certain people, based on their race, have some sort of inherited attributes, inherited attributes that as a group you put these people together from a similar race and they will then uh, either have the capacity to create or not be able to create a sophisticated civilization or what have you or this is why they do things because they're from a certain race no right, what we think of as race are superficial biological differences that have no impact whatsoever on intelligence or the ability to have sophisticated, dense social groups and the cities and, you know, inventions and things that human beings create. All right. And the terms and categories that we use and we think that we're talking about race are purely constructs of our mind. Now, I'm not saying we don't believe in these things and they don't have force when we believe in them. If you all believe that white is a legitimate race and that exists in the world and you go about your daily business thinking that white is a race and that has meaning for you, you, you invest some sort of meaning in that. Oh, white people have certain attributes and they can do this or they don't do this. Black people, black is a race and black people uh, are, have a more tendency to do this blah, 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 um, then, of course, in our daily lived experience, that matters because it affects people's actions. Uh, I'm just here to tell you that these are inventions of our mind and they exist only in our mind. Okay? Um, you know, the easiest, the best example I always like to pull out of this, just, just think of like the census uh, that is taken in various countries, just use the United States census. Uh, go back historically and look at the various censuses that have been taken, the categories, the racial categories, and how they change uh, over time. All right? Uh, you know, things like Irish used to be a race. <laughs> you know, the Irish were once a race. Now the Irish are white. But that's also situational. All right. You go to Ireland and to be Irish uh, means something different than to be Irish in America. In America, you end up becoming uh, subsumed into the default category of white. You're not really Irish anymore. All right. It's different. Um, white is this catch-all phrase uh, that has changed over time. Who's white and who's not? The boundaries of that definition change. Black is this absurd term that subsumes all kinds of people with different uh, uh, colorations of skin, uh, most of which, if you look at it objectively, 
that's not even black. Look at the color black and then look at the color skin of people who are usually put under that category of black and you'll realize it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. Oftentimes in my classes, if we're talking about the origins of racial theories or, uh, you know, the uh, the hierarchy of races that was uh, enumerated in social Darwinism, white, yellow, and, you know, and black, red, and brown being towards the bottom, um, I'll, I'll often ask my students, you know, to sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, what, what do you know about this racial hierarchy that was promulgated in the 19th century? Um, and uh, one time I had uh, a student from China, uh, the first thing they said was, uh, oh, yes, uh, you know, uh, uh, the whites brought in this idea of white and uh, they called Asians yellow. Yellow skin, right? Um, and I went up to him. <laughs> I pulled up the sleeve of my arm and I put my arm next to his and I said, you're whiter than I am. Do you realize that? In fact, there are a lot of Asians who are whiter than so-called white people. Okay? These categories are ridiculous when you start to logically examine them. And they wither under scrutiny and they change over time. All right, we create these categories for uh, uh, our, our, our own agendas, and our agendas change over time. Okay, so race doesn't really exist. Uh, you could not identify someone who's from Japan if you stripped clean all cultural, attri uh, cultural attributes, clothes, makeup, hairstyle, glasses, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, we need to understand this. This is very important to understand. Which is why when I talk about the Amato race, purebred or mongrel, you should already be thinking about this question in a different way now. All right, that there is no such thing as an objectively existing Yamato race. The Yamato race is an invention. The Japanese race is an invention. Okay? Um, and where they came from, what their origins are, who is included in that definition, changes depending on who you ask, where you ask them, and when you ask them. So let's get into the details now of who, what, when, where, and why as it pertains to Japanese identity before, during, and after the empire. All right. Um, Pre-modern terms and identities. Now that we have the obligatory race only exists in our mind, uh, disclaimer out of the way, here's where the pre-empire uh, uh, terms of identity for Japan came from. All right, let's start with the most obvious, Japan. Uh, why do we call it Japan in English? Does it have any relation to what the uh, people in Japan actually called their own country? All right, here we go. Get ready for this. This is going to blow your mind. All right, it's going to not blow your mind. It's going to twist your mind into a headache. Japan is derived from the Portuguese pronunciation of Malayan and Indonesian pronunciations of the southern Chinese pronunciations of the Japanese Nihon or Nippon, which is itself the Japanese pronunciation of Chinese characters for origin of the sun. <laughs> Did you catch all that? This is insane, isn't it? All right, let's begin here. Uh, in J standard Japanese, the word for Japan for the country is Nihon or Nippon. The changes depending on the grammatical context. Okay, uh, this is the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese characters for origin of the sun in present-day Chinese, Ruben, sun origin or sun root, those two characters. All right, the Japanese pronounce these two characters, Nihon or Nippon. Then you have southern Chinese languages, you know, I don't use the word dialect because they're mutually unintelligible. Southern Chinese languages, like down in Guangzhou, Fujian, Zhejiang province, uh, they pronounced when they encountered Japanese fishermen, say, where do you guys come from? <laughs> All right, their pronunciation of Nihon or Nippon was Zeppin. Zeppin then would be uh, 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 borrowed into. Southeast Asian languages like Malayan and various Indonesian languages as Japang. And then the Portuguese, when they went to Southeast Asia, they heard Japang. And that's where we get Japan into the European languages. All right. This, you know, I saved the most complex uh, thing for the very beginning. All right. So where do we get uh, the uh, root of the sun, the origin of the sun, Nihon Nippon. Where does the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese characters come from? Well, already we're going to be able to see the original orientation of where Japanese culture came from. It came from China. Uh, and the Chinese were the first to name Japan. 
Nihon, the, the kanji, the Chinese characters for origin of the sun, um, first appears in 7th century documents from the Sui dynasty, 7th century AD, it's the 600s, to refer to a country composed of distant islands in the far east. All right, this is from the Chinese perspective. The origin of the sun with regard to China was Japan. That's where the sun came up, in the east, and then it sets in the west. If China, for some reason, happened to be located on the east of Japan, then Japan would have been where the sun sets, and the name would have been quite different. All right, so it's already the, the whole identity of the islands itself uh, comes from its relation, its geographical relation to China, um, as to the terms that are going to be used here. All right, um, now, since the third century, since the 3rd century AD, you know, four, 400 years prior to the creation of this word uh, Nihon, uh, or Ruben in Chinese, uh, people and envoys uh, still came from the Japanese islands. They just simply weren't known by that name yet. They actually were known by a different name. And this is going to give us a clue into where the word Yamato comes from. Um, now, people who came from the Japanese islands to China uh, prior to the 7th century, uh, they would be given the pejorative appellation, the pejorative name of Wa or Wo. That's the Chinese word. And because this is a podcast, unlike in the classroom, I can't put this character, this Chinese character, on the board. Okay? Uh, there wasn't just one Chinese character. Uh, there would be uh, interchangeable Chinese characters, all pronounced either Wa or Wo, W-A or W-O. Um, and they were derogatory. They were derogatory characters with derogatory meanings, because as we already have talked about, um, you know, in that Confucian world order, the Sinocentric world order, uh, there are civilized people and there are barbarian peoples, and uh, you openly refer to the barbarians as such, and you use Chinese characters that often have insect or animal radicals that are attached to those characters. And when the Chinese and when the Japanese imported the Chinese, you know, script and ideology and everything, they did the exact same thing, right? The Ainu, the barbarians of Ezochi, uh, also used. Uh, insect radicals to describe the barbarians there. Uh, but previously, the Japanese were described as these barbarians. Um, these characters, Wa, Wol, usually implied some sort of submissiveness, uh, squatting, and shortness of stature. Now, in Japanese languages, Wa was pronounced Yamato, that exact same character that the Chinese used to refer to them in derogatory fashion was pronounced Yamato. That's simply the Japanese pronunciation of the exact same character, just like you had with Ruben and Nihon, the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese characters for Japan. Okay, uh, but they said, all right, the spoken pronunciation of this Wa character uh, doesn't sound so bad in Japanese. Yamato doesn't necessarily have any you know, negative meanings with us, uh, but obviously the character that's used to write down Yamato has a negative meaning. So they changed the character, the Chinese character, from one character to two characters, which had the exact same pronunciation of Yamato. They took the Chinese characters for Da He, Great Harmony. And then in, China, in Japanese, these, these two characters were also pronounced as Yamato, but with a much nicer meaning. Great harmony is a much nicer meaning than some submissive, squat, ugly person that Wa or Wo previously denoted. Okay, so that's where you get Yamato from, a derogatory Chinese word uh, that is uh, um, absorbed, internalized by the Japanese, and then just sort of, you know, hey, uh, we'll give it, what we'll, does... We'll replace the character and give it a different meaning. All right, you're already getting a sense now of how contingent and random uh, these sort of identity politics are. There's no eternal Yamato race that's always existed. All right, already at the very beginning, we see that it was originally pejorative. It wasn't, it, it wasn't even a nice term. And the Japanese internalized this and they just said, oh, to hell with that old character, we'll just switch it. There's no eternal Yamato race. It was invented and then reinvented and then reinvented <laughs> over and over and over again. Now, even that, Yamato, this is something that exists, this is, this is a term that isn't all that often even deployed. In the domestic Japanese context on the home islands, uh, anytime you're talking about uh, identity politics, um, Yamato is not really your most important term. Okay, and when you used it, usually you're just talking about the educated elites. 
All right. Uh, you have various mythical folk tales and stories that the educated elites will put down in writing and talk about. Uh, this has, has, these have to do with the birth of mythical emperors who existed in the distant past. Emperor Jinmu. They'll talk about a mythical Yamato dynasty that once existed. All right, you're just building on these myths. These myths are known as the Kiki myths. They're gods descending to earth. It's just stories that are invented to provide a backstory for Yamato. Once you realize uh, this is what the Chinese call us, we've taken it and then put a positive spin on it. Now we need a positive backstory for it. All right. It's just purely inventing these sort of things out of thin air. There was no Emperor Jinmu um, and there was no Yamato dynasty. And even when these things were invoked, it was pretty much just an identity that was ascribed to the Japanese elites. Okay. Um, most people at most times, let's say during the Tokugawa era, the vast majority of people are not thought of in terms of any sort of racial or ethnic identity. Or, uh, they're thought of in terms of status identities, uh, occupational identities, these sorts of things. They're the tax-producing agricultural subjects of the state. And most of the educated elites, just like in Korea and China, um, they would say, uh, you know, they're not the same people as us. They would, you know, they would basically uh, admit that the dirty, disgusting, filthy peasants, uneducated, who can't read any of the classical texts, are hardly even civilized. And they need us, refined, educated elites, to transform them and improve them. But they're ignorant and stupid. They use those words, ignorant and stupid, and dirty and deplorable. Okay, uh, they didn't identify with them in any meaningful way. All right, what I'm trying to say here, and this is not just Japan, this is everywhere in the pre-modern world. There was no vertical homogeneity whatsoever. There were only vertical distinctions on a finely delineated hierarchy that was explicitly unequal. Those at the top of this vertical hierarchy had more in common with Korean elites and, Japanese, and, and Chinese elites than they did with their own Japanese subjects living in the farmlands. Now, today, from our perspective, we're way beyond this era, and most of Japan's educated. Most of you know, the uh, uh, developed world is illiterate and educated, so we look back on this and we sort of retroactively ascribe anachronistic group identities that didn't exist. Most of the Japanese peasants are not thinking of themselves as members of the Yamato race. They can't even read and write. They probably never even heard of the Yamato race. What is this thing that you say that I'm a part of? If you could travel back in time and you went to a Japanese farm and you said, oh, look, it's members of the Yamato race. They say, what? Yamato race? What the hell are you talking about? And maybe if you went to the educated elites in the cities and palaces, they'd say, oh yeah, Yamato. But more likely they too would just say, no, I'm a member of this family. Uh, I'm a member of this descent line, and these are my ancestors. That would be far more important to them. Okay? Um, most people were thought of in sort of status groups. And in the Tokugawa era, they imported this Confucian uh, uh, class distinction that said, oh, our society is made up of four elements. We have warriors, the samurai. That was just the Chinese, sure, the same term that was used um, for, you know, ancient warrior class that sort of morphed into philosophers. Uh, Confucius was a member of the sure class. All right, they're at the top. Oh, surprise, surprise. <laughs> uh, you took the same system that the Chinese used to put educated men at the top of society. Uh, philosophers. Uh, in this case, it's samurai who are, you know, increasingly not being used during the Tokugawa era for their martial training anymore. Uh, then they said peasants. Peasants are pretty high up on the hierarchy, just below samurai, uh, uh, at least in theory, because they produce uh, the necessary agriculture that supports the state. Again, it's in theory. In reality, most peasants were openly despised by the educated elites. But in theory, when they're writing on paper um, and talking about grand abstract concepts and whatnot, they'd like to valorize the peasants who they wouldn't dare get close to. To, uh, if they actually met him in person. Um, and then you had artisans uh, in the city, and then uh, in good Confucian fashion at the bottom of society were the merchants, parasites of society who contribute nothing and are just middlemen who take their cut out of every transaction, those horrible merchants. That's a Confucian idea. This system, this four-class system, four-occupational you know, uh, uh, type of a uh, system, uh, it didn't describe actual Japanese society. Okay, it's just another uh, system of identity politics that was used in certain times and places for certain people uh, who it was useful for. 
but it didn't describe actual society. Okay, so before we get to the you know the sort of the, the end of the Tokugawa era, the lesson we need to take away from here is that race itself is an invented category, um, and it serves the purposes of those who are in power at any given place and time, and that changes. Um, and that for most of Japanese history, the terms that we associate with Japan today, and that most Japanese are educated to uh, believe in today as well, uh, Japan and Yamato, had little utility. They had very little utility in the sense that we think of them today. They were not terms of social and cultural homogeneity that were used on a regular basis to identify groups of people. They appeared mostly in elite texts that were intended for other elite-educated readers, usually in distant neighboring lands. All right, when Japanese elites are writing or communicating with Chinese elites on the mainland, uh, they're going to describe themselves as members of, you know, Japan, Nihon, uh, the Yamato race. Um, when they're in their own context at home, they're not going to use these terms. All right, they're, they're of very little utility. Now, let's move on to the Meiji era with the, restor the Meiji Restoration, 1868. Now, when the emperor is restored, and he's no longer just a puppet, this is the pretext to take over the shogun and abolish the bakufu, his so-called protector, um, you need a new national identity. You said, you know, we need to create a new cohesive national identity. Um, as part of modernization, of part, as part of westernization, you're going to be exploiting the resources of your subjects like you never have before. Um, you need to give them some sort of a stake. Uh, you need to include them in your uh, definition of what your country is. What is this new nation that we're going to bring into existence? Uh, you have to invent a new discourse about race. Okay, and, and your, your nation, there was no national discourse during the Tokugawa era. There was no, you know, national racial discourse that applied to everyone during the Tokugawa era. National discourses, racial discourses, these are products of the very, very, very modern era that we live in today. Maybe they go back a little bit further in the West, uh, but when these categories are imposed on other parts of the country, they are imported essentially at some point during the 19th century and often don't take real root until the 20th century. Okay, um, so what, new, what is the new national racial discourse that's going to occur during the Meiji era? Now this is after the Tokugawa, but before the formal creation of the empire. The new official discourse is known as the National Polity Discourse, the Kokutai. All right, just It literally means, the kanji for this literally mean uh, the essence of the state. What is the essence of our state? So we refer to this in English as the national polity discourse. Okay, What is this new national identity? Um, it's going to be based heavily on the symbol of the emperor who you've just restored. The whole pretext for creating this new state and overthrowing the old order that has existed quite successfully for the past 268 years, the whole pretext is that you're restoring the emperor to his rightful throne. So it goes without, you know, it stands to reason that the new national identity is going to have a heavy dose of the emperor's identity. So what they're doing actually is they're taking that elite divine discourse of the pre-modern era, this idea that the emperors and the aristocratic class are somehow d uh, descended from the gods, uh, but just them. You know, not everyone is said to be descended from the gods. Those dirty peasants in the field who can't read, they're not descended from the gods. No, just us. Now you're going to take that elite divinity discourse and apply it to the whole population because you need to educate them, mobilize them, and exploit them like never before. They need a stake in the new order. What better way than to send them to school and say, you actually belong to this divine nation as well. And you're connected to the emperor. Okay? So, in place of vertical status distinctions in an explicit unequal hierarchy, Japan now is creating, after 1868, its educated elites are trying to create a homogenous, horizontal national polity platform. In theory, this doesn't mean that class and status distinctions magically melt away. Okay, one day you're an unequal uh, merchant who's despised, and you know the next day you're uh, related to the divine emperor as part of a homogenous Yamato race and Japanese nation. It doesn't work like that. But in theory, it kind of does work like that. If you just, you know, produce a new discourse on paper, then you have to go about trying to educate people. And if they're illiterate to begin with, it's not going to be terribly difficult uh, to uh, uh, plant a seed and let it uh, bloom of this new discourse and what you want them to believe about themselves. 
So after 1868, the new discourse says, you are now a Nihonjin, you are now Japanese. If you worship the Japanese emperor as divine, and you acknowledge ancient filial ties to his divine family. You acknowledge that you are part of that family somehow. You are descended from the emperor at some distant point in the past. It has to be very distant because you have to explain why you're so poor and miserable today. Uh, so clearly that, 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 that fall from grace happened a long, long time ago. Uh, but regardless, all right, the emperor has a huge role, symbolic role in the new national identity. This will change after 1945. This is something that just exists from 1868 to 1945. Okay, you're a part of his family. He's divine. You're a part of that divine family. Um, and you also subscribe to Shintoism. What is Shintoism? Shintoism it was just whatever the native religion was of the Japanese islands um, uh, before Buddhism was imported from the mainland. Um, after Buddhism gets there, like it happens with every part of Asia, uh, Buddhism in intermingles with local gods, uh, local landscape gods, the gods of the nearby mountains and rivers and ancestors and all that, uh, co-ops some of them, uh, 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 changes itself to accommodate many of these gods, um, and you have this sort of um, you know medley, this uh, uh, colorful medley of a new religion in which you couldn't really uh, identify what's Buddhist and what's Shinto. All right, it's going to be hard to tell because they're so uh, intertwined with one another and have borrowed so many things from one another. Uh, oftentimes, you would have one temple in uh, Japan, and uh, it was sort of a mixed Buddhist and Shinto temple. All right, mixed nativist and uh, imported religion uh, would both sort of all be wrapped up in one temple. After 1868, they say, oh, that's no good. We need sort of a unique national identity, and Buddhism is a foreign religion. Uh, therefore, uh, we need to separate the two, and there would be a mass persecution campaign against Buddhist temples, and oftentimes they would sort of, you know, draw a fine line. This is Shinto, this is Buddhism, we need two separate uh, religious buildings now for these, um, and Buddhism would start losing state funding, uh, you know, many state privileges that would be granted by the government, it would uh, be persecuted, you know, essentially. And Shintoism uh, would start to uh, be raised up quite artificially as uh, this has always been our native religion and now we're just recovering it for our national identity. All right. This is also very artificial. Uh, anytime you hear someone talking about, you know, traditional Shinto rites, ancient Shinto rites and this sort of thing, it's bullshit. All right? We don't have a clue what ancient Shinto rites were in 900 A.D., uh, we know whatever people were doing uh, that was a mix of native and Buddhist religion at that time period, um, but they pretty much just you know go in and make hard decisions in the 1860s and 1870s and 1880s, um, and oftentimes arbitrarily just say, no, we said this is Shintoism, that's Buddhism, and now Shintoism is the official state religion that gives you your unique Japanese identity. So there's three main elements to the new Kokutai discourse, the national polity discourse. A divine emperor, family ties to that emperor, and as we'll see, that can eventually be uh, regarded as either by birth, by blood, or by adoption, and native Shintoism as distinct from imported foreign Buddhism. Okay, this is very different from the Tokugawa era. No one's talking about, oh, the shogun, the samurai, the emperor, the daimyo, the peasants, the merchants are all one family and one nation and one race. Hell no. The Meiji Kokutai discourse is what you should think of when you think of what is Japanese nationalism um, during the empire. But it's just the nationalism to create a Japanese nation. And convince people that there's this thing called the Japanese nation and Yamato race that actually exist and we're all members of it. Um, and very soon after the, the, these concepts are created, they will evolve. They will evolve with the accumulation, with the acquisition of new territories and new peoples. You have to expand these concepts once more, which again should remind you these are not natural, obvious, self-evident categories. Uh, they change as the circumstances change. So this is actually a very simple ideology, but one that has tremendous flexibility. <clears throat> okay, if you want, if you're on sort of the conservative purist bloodline sort of um, camp, you can say that the Yamato people are all one family. It's the main three, perhaps four islands um, of the Japanese home islands, and this is what this race includes, and it's all by birth. If you're more on the sort of maybe a progressive liberal end, 
not so conservative here and you're interested in expanding beyond your boundaries, you're going to realize that that purist bloodline interpretation uh, has its drawbacks and is limited. And you'll say, oh, no, no, no. If we're a family, then families can grow. Families can be extended. And it's not just by birth. Uh, people can be adopted into a family. They can be honorary members of a family, fictive kinship. And you'll say, no, we, we can be incorporated not only that, by marriage too. Marriage, adoption, uh, there are many ways to make this family grow. Why should the Yamato race be content to just be great on our home islands? The Yamato race is so great. All nationalist discourses say that the, the core nation is so great, the best one on earth. If we're so great, why should we leave our greatness here? We should share our greatness with the rest of the world and give them, you know, inclusion. Somehow find ways to include them by marriage, by adoption, whatever, into our family. And they can all regard the emperor as their common patriarch. Maybe not by blood, but by other means of incorporation. Now, both of these strains of thought, both of these uh, rival interpretations of the Kokutai discourse will exist together. And some people will stick to one and some people will stick to another. Okay, I'm not trying to say only one prevails. These things are complex. People are diverse, and all this. And, and although the state tries to brainwash everyone with the propaganda, you know, towards history and identity that we all get in public schools, um, it doesn't always take. And some people gravitate towards one end or another, or just pick and choose what they like. Uh, so there's still going to be a lot of diversity into what people actually think. But which one achieves official prominence? That's what we're interested in. What is the official definition? In other words, who is the loudest voice in the room? The loudest voice in the room concerning identity politics is usually the person with the most wealth and power. There might be many different voices, but he or she is the loudest one and therefore usually has the most influence and the ability to convince people that their position is correct and natural and self-evident and has always existed. All right. What I'm here to tell you is that for the 50 years of the Japanese empire, the version that usually prevailed by those who were in power, okay, and had a stake in maintaining and expanding the Japanese empire and making it work, those people tended to favor the version of this discourse that paved a path of least resistance. And the path of least resistance was the more flexible one. Universal brotherhood united in obedience to the Japanese emperor, acknowledging that we all are able to have family ties by one means or another, even if it's not blood. Let me read you a quote from one of the first Japanese officials who arrived in Taiwan after Taiwan was uh, acquired in 1895. In 1897, this official in Taiwan, Japanese, uh, says the following, quote, According to the old nativist scholars, the populace of Japan consists of nothing more but the so-called Yamato nation. However, this interpretation is totally mistaken. The benevolence of our imperial family is not limited to such a small range. It is, in fact, as great as the universe. It is the idea of universal brotherhood under the emperor. The idea that people all over the world can become his majesty's subjects if only they are obedient. Since ancient times, the number of naturalized foreigners has never been small. All right, note here how he's saying there are other people in Japan, the old nativist scholars, who are clinging to a very narrow interpretation of the Yamato race, the Yamato nation, all right, over the past 30 years or so. That's all there is, and it's in Japan, and we're the best, but there's no need to like go beyond our borders. And this is a colonial official who has a stake in making the empire work, has a stake in trying to convince people living on Taiwan that you can be a part of us. You're not going to be separate. And even if in reality you might have discriminatory colonial policies of exclusion, at least in theory, usually the more you know, permissive, the more inclusive discourse will often prevail, at least in the more successful empires, because it doesn't do a whole lot of good to uh, go out of your way to antagonize people and say you have no hope whatsoever of becoming one of us, improving your lot in life, or benefiting from our presence. Uh, that tends not to lead to successful empires. Okay. Um, now, what were the ideologies of race that prevailed during the 50 years of empire? The guiding ethos, some of the details, all right, some of the details of this universal brotherhood was that Japan, the Yamato race, and the Japanese nation are defined and have always been defined by ethnic plurality and multi-directional migration. Those are your two keywords. 
If you were a student in my class, I would ask you to remember those two keywords uh, for future exams, uh, ethnic plurality and multi-directional migration. Pre-World War II Japan was a multi-ethnic empire with a multi-ethnic ideology to match that empire. This is a very simple fact that is almost totally forgotten today. The dominant myth, and it was a myth, just like myths of the you know pure blood uh, Yamato race are also a myth. The dominant myth was ethnic plurality of the Japanese people since time immemorial, not ethnic homogeneity. That's going to be a post-war, post-empire myth that is created after 1945. To accommodate and explain the burgeoning empire after 1895, theories of multi-directional Asian migration became popular. This built upon the national polity Kokutai theory, but did not replace it. They would say the mythological leaders of the core islands of Japan and Korea, they would uh, uh, fold Korea into this as well, all descended from the mythical gods, Emperor Jinmu and all of those people. Then they united and civilized the, the existing people and brought them into their family. However, the core islands of uh, Japan and Korea uh, that constituted the descent lines of these original uh, divine entities, um, that doesn't encompass the entirety of our community from a historical perspective. It acknowledged we had later migration from every single direction in Asia. Okay, they said newcomers could enter this Yamato or Nihonjin family simply through the recognition of the, of the emperor as their divine patriarch. Okay? Um, and thus, we have always been one family, and we have always incorporated different groups of people. Races, ethnic groups, cultural groups, whatever, however you want to think about them. Uh, we've always been open to them. And they've joined the Yamato family since time immemorial. This means that Japan was settled by all directions of Asia, and it's uh, multi-ethnic. We are a mix of different peoples from different areas. Was this fine distinction lost on many poorly educated Japanese soldiers and insensitive Japanese tourists in the colonies? Absolutely. But it was still the official discourse. And don't you forget it. <laughs> okay, because it's not the official discourse today. That was still the official propaganda that everyone was introduced to. And it was useful for justifying the incorporation of new lands. Okay, but they said from the very beginning, we've always been incorporating new lands. Uh, it wasn't just Korea and the core Japanese islands. We had the Ainu and the Ryukyuns. We also brought them into the fold. Well, how do you explain them? They said the Ainu were part of the original Yamato race who wandered too far north and lost touch with civilization. So distant sort of, you know, cousins who uh, went up into the mountains and became hillbillies and sort of lost touch with the civilized core. We need to bring them back. We need to bring them back. And then some people thought, you know what, we don't need to bring them back. They're an embarrassment. They are those, you know, redneck hillbilly cousins in the mountains. Um, and uh, we let, let, let natural selection take over and we don't need to, um, you know, bring them back at all. <laughs> Let's just sort of forget about these embarrassing cousins. Uh, you know, there was diversity of opinions on that as well. The Ryukians, the Okinawans, they were also a part of that original family, a little more distant. Okay, but they were a part of that original family, and once again, it's 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 the right thing to do, both for their uh, prospects, for their future, and for ours to reincorporate them into our state and to and to you know re welcome them back with open arms into the Yamato family. Okay, the bottom line, however, was crystal clear: the Japanese people have always been diverse. This diversity is a good thing, and we should encourage more diversity through imperial expansion. Let me read you a quote from Tsuboi Shogoru, an anthropologist at Tokyo Imperial University in the year 1900, five years after acquiring Taiwan. Listen to this, all right, what he says. It's, it's fascinating. Quote, some Japanese are descended from people who came from the tropics, while others are descendants of people from cold countries. Therefore, when the population of Japan increases and it becomes time to spread this population to other areas, we do not have to be selective. To the tropical areas, we can send those Japanese tolerant of heat, and to cold regions, those tolerant of the cold. But when a nation consists only of people who share the same characteristics, they may be good at some things, but not good at all at other things. The complexity of the Japanese race is a blessing. 
and certainly nothing to grieve about. It's a pragmatic discourse born out of the realization that Japan is expanding and we need to have an olive branch, a means of incorporation to new peoples as being a member of our divine community. Right, you can already see here, when we, when we, when we take over tropical lands, because now they're in Taiwan, uh, we can send those Japanese who are like, you know, grew up on Okinawa, <laughs> right? Um, they're Japanese, but they have a tropical experience. They're going to be great for Taiwan. Let's send people who grew up on Hokkaido. Or maybe civilized Ainu to go to the cold lands when they move up into Sahalin or Manchuria, Northeast Asia. This guy's openly saying the complexity of the Japanese race is a blessing. Keep this in mind when you hear about the homogeneity, purity, and so-called historical isolation of the Japanese people today. I don't normally swear. Well, I do in my, my personal life, but not in my professional life. But I'm going to do it here because I have to. It's bullshit, <laughs> right? It doesn't exist. It exists only in our mind, this idea. It's been planted since 1945. In fact, many intellectuals thought Japan was best suited of all Asian countries to be a modern colonizer because its people were already mongrels themselves. The Yamato race is already a mongrel race, and that's a good thing. Here's a quote from a 1907 Japanese school textbook, the sort of thing that's designed to indoctrinate young Japanese minds. Whether it takes or not, we don't know. That's, that's a whole other study. But it, this, this is what the people in power wanted Japanese boys and girls to believe in 1907. Quote, there is no country apart from Japan which includes the blood of so many various nations. This is why the Japanese are blessed with such a powerful ability to assimilate. We are, you know, made to be colonizers and imperialists. And that's a good thing because we are so damn mongrel. <laughs> and we are taking pride in how much of a mongrel race we are. It'll help us when we colonize others. Now, um, the discourse will change ever slightly. Uh, it'll conform to the unique uh, situation that Japanese colonizers will find themselves throughout the course of the empire. Again, because I've, I've you know, gone to great pains to make you understand, to help you realize that these ideas about race, they change over time. They're situational um, and, they can, and they're uh, more than happy to have contradictions within the exact same definition. Uh, people can handle many different contradictions and it doesn't bother them whatsoever. Uh, in one situation, I say and I believe this. In another situation, I say and I believe this. It makes sense in each of these situations. And I don't usually try to uh, reconcile the two because they they are they exist in different situational contexts. Now, uh, let's start with Korea. All right, with Korea, uh, how are you going to tweak tweak this discourse a little bit? Well, Japan was said to have a special relationship with Korea. It was the closest of all the other Asian nations. Um, it was a dense place with, you know, uh, intensive agricultural society, lots of people, uh, a large population, unlike, let's say, Taiwan, which would have a relatively smaller population. Um, and they would say, you know, you know, as far as cultural heritage goes, Korea probably most resembles Japan. We're both recipient nations of China <clears throat> um, and in our dress, architecture and this sort of stuff. And our spoken language, we're actually more closely related. Uh, cast your mind back to episode three or four of this podcast, which you talk about East Asian languages um, and uh, Japan and Korea were uh, seen as having languages that were more similar to each other than they were to Chinese. Remember, don't confuse the written scripts and think that they all borrowed Chinese, therefore they're all related. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, Japanese language, Korean language are completely different from Chinese, the Altaic language family. Uh, whereas Chinese is Sino-Tibetan. Uh, English is about as closely related to Chinese as Japanese and Korean are. All right, They simply borrowed the Chinese written script and then found it so incredibly inadequate to represent the sounds and the needs of their spoken language that they created their own alphabetic scripts to supplement it, Hangul in Korea and uh, Hiragana and Katakana in Japan. Now, uh, Korea is going to be annexed in 1910, formally. That's when it becomes part of the empire. But there was already a large Japanese presence in the 1890s, and they were trying to get it as early as the 1880s and the 1890s. So there's been a, a Japanese presence in Korea uh, for another 20, 30 years before uh, you actually get the formal annexation of Korea. They wanted it for longer than they actually had it. All right. Um, Korea was the only colony that was said to belong to the original divine race as Japanese before it started absorbing the bloodlines of other you know, races and became so mongrel. Um, it was the original divine race. 
when those mythical emperors came down and gave birth to, you know, the first uh, historical emperors and whatnot, uh, it included Korea and Japan. All right. In that formulation, the Korean Peninsula is one of the Japanese islands. <laughs> okay. The three home Japanese islands and Korea that were, they, they were imagined to be one entity, all from the same lineage. Um, no distant migration involved. All right, and the divine mythological emperors cross back and forth in the course of their reigns uh, from the peninsula back to the Japanese islands. They're the same family. Travel was not even considered to be to a foreign country. You have to hop between islands. You had to hop between the islands to the Korean peninsula. Same thing. All right. Uh, thus, it is natural for the Koreans and the Japanese to live in the same state again and become members of the same family again. How you have to explain Korea's estrangement. Why do they have their own state? Uh, why they seem closer in many respects to China than they are to Japan. Well, unfortunately, this original Yamato family shrank uh, due to degeneracy, laziness, the insular mindset. Korea, unfortunately, stagnated and fell behind. Why? How do you explain this? Due to the turbulence and vulnerability that they have, geographic vulnerability to the mainland. Unfortunately, unlike Japan, uh, Korea is not as well protected from the mainland. Japan has actual water between us. You have to invade Japan with a navy as the Mongols found, much to their misfortune. Uh, Korea, you don't need a navy to invade. And it was continually invaded over and over again by mainland powers, sometimes Chinese, sometimes nomadic powers. Uh, but regardless, it could never fully extricate itself from what was going on on the mainland. And so they said, because of all this turbulence on the mainland, um, they, uh, Korea kept on stagnating and getting drawn into things that uh, estranged them from the original Yamato family. And Japan's duty, just like with the Ryukians and the Ainu, is to lift them back up and welcome them back into the family. Okay, we have to repeat the unifying actions of our common ancient ancestors. Now, if the Koreans don't acknowledge the story, that's unfortunate. <laughs> They've forgotten our common family myths. But we will remind them one way or the other of our common ancestry, uh, even if they have forgotten about this. And they would bring in the social sciences and the humanities to prove, you know, I put scare quotes around prove, because uh, this is dubious science, obviously, to prove the relationship, the historical relationship between Korea and Japan. Linguists would say, hey, our languages are so similar. One Japanese ling uh, linguist in 1910 said, quote, the language of Korea belongs to the same family as the language of the great Japanese empire. It is nothing but a branch dialect of the Japanese language. And the relationship between Japanese and Korean is the same as that between Japanese and the Ryukyu dialect. You can see what they're doing here. Uh, you marshal whatever sort of historical evidence is convenient to your argument. I'm not saying it's not true that Korea and, ja and Japan are similar languages, um, but you could make you know similar arguments and pick out other evidence that would prove uh, something that shows that they actually have evolved from each other, and there's a lot of differences. Um, what actually gets used to determine the current political relationship is uh, you know contingent on what the people in power want to use. Uh, and they will pick and choose just whatever is useful to them and ignore evidence that's not. Of course, that's what they're doing here to try to prove the natural inevitability that Korea needs to be a part of Japan once more. Okay, the political implication of all of this, of this discourse as it's applied to Korea, is that the principles of national determination do not apply to Korea. You don't have the right to have your own state, to you know, a nation state that rules itself. That doesn't apply to you because you're part of Japan historically, and we've proved it with our documents. Um, and therefore, these principles actually show that Korea must be reunified with Japan. You don't have a right to national determination. You have a right to rejoin the original Yamato race, of which Japan is also a member, but we retain memory of that relationship, and you don't. Now, uh, I talk about Korea because that's one of the earliest... Um, um, What's the word? Uh, one of the earliest iterations of the uh, racial discourse that Japan will have uh, that changes ever so slightly when it, uh, it confronts new lands that they have to incorporate into the state. Uh, as we get into other lands that the Japanese empire will absorb for the next 50 years, we will talk about how the racial discourse tweaks ever so slightly. Uh, are the Chinese originally part of this race? Uh, how do we justify bringing them into the Japanese family? What about the Taiwanese? What about the Micronesians? Uh, uh, Southeast Asians? Are they a member of this family? Well, we'll see. 
Now, um, another discourse we want to talk about, this is a really unique one. This really always blows my mind whenever I hear this, but it makes sense in the context of the day. There was a discourse on how the Japanese might actually be the Caucasians of Asia, the whites of Asia. As the Japanese empire expands, <clears throat> okay, there will be a realization among many Japanese intellectuals. Uh, they'll, 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 they'll come to the conclusion, Japan is unique among all other Asians. We're the only ones able to compete with the Western empires. There must be something special about us. There must be something special about us. We're the only ones who have modernized successfully, thrown off the yoke of Oriental despotism, and become as successful as the Westerners, dress like the Westerners, conquer like the Westerners, uh, invent things like the Westerners. We're special. So when they came into contact with the Western classification, the social Darwinist classification of different races, and white's at the top, and yellow is second, uh, the Japanese said, this is impossible to accept this. We're not inferior. We're not the yellow race. I'm sorry. We've mimicked the accomplishments of the white race to perfection. Therefore, we must have some sort of a white ancestor too. So the new theory that began to be developed uh, as early as the 1890s, even before you actually have the formal acquisition of the empire, was that the Yamato race was originally a Caucasian race, perhaps, that migrated eastward. You can see how already this is a contradiction with the divine Emperor Jinmu coming down and giving birth to the Korean and Japanese. Um, you know, some people would have both ideas in their mind and they would try to reconcile it, you know, by, you know, jumping through hoops and other people would just say, no, 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 actually this is probably makes more sense and they would be sort of a, 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 a fringe theory, okay? But the theory existed. So we were a Caucasian race that migrated eastward and we only turned yellow through mixing with degenerate Asians, inferior Asian races who diluted our blood. Now, Chinese intellectuals didn't go this far. They simply said, they accepted the classification. They were like, you know what? We're not white, but yellow's a, a close second. <laughs> at least we're not classified as red, brown, or black. Oh, I don't want to be that. Uh, at least we're second place, okay? Um, and so they didn't go that far. They said, yellow's as close as you can get to white. Good enough. They didn't actually claim that we're white or we have white ancestors. Uh, some Chinese intellectuals like the Confucian uh, reformist Kang Youwei in the late 19th and early 20th century, he actually advocated interbreeding. The yellow race should interbreed with the white race to create a new super race. It'll be the best traits of the yellow race um, and you know, obviously the best traits of the white race. Uh, Japanese didn't go quite that far. So anyways, what tribe was it that went east? Well, one person said that the Greeks went east. It must have been the Greeks. Maybe we're actually related to the Greeks. They have some, you know, their language and some of their mythology is similar to ours. Well, you know, the, some, some Greek tribes went west, some went east. The Ainu were also seen to be a potential link for people who were trying to find a white pedigree for the Japanese. They said that Azo, that word for the island, the barbarian island, we called it Azo before we called it Hokkaido. That's actually a corrupted form of Esau tribe. Esau being Jacob's older brother in the Old Testament. And other people said, yeah, 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 I agree with this. And they actually would publish books in which they would uh, uh, include pictures of the Ainu, uh, facial portraits of the Ainu. And they would compare it with men like uh, Tolstoy, uh, Marx, and Darwin and say, look, the Ainu have some sort of facial resemblances to some of these famous Westerners. All right, this stuff is absurd. Okay, it uh, doesn't mean people didn't actually explore these ideas and perhaps believe in them. Um, and I don't want to say this is a mainstream discourse. The mainstream discourse that comes out of this is that the Japanese are special and the Japanese are different than Asians. And although we geographically are uh, uh, anchored to Asia, uh, there's something different and special about us. And don't you forget it. And uh, in many ways, many people would say that the Japanese have not forgotten it, even after the end of the empire. Um, and many Asians also have not forgotten that they have been conditioned to think of the Japanese as uh, part of Asia, but different than Asia and special from Asia. Uh, that, that tension will always exist. And the discourse of the white origins of the Yamato race um, is one of those uh, manifestations of this fringe theory. Now, after the empire was over, uh, you get a, a dramatic ideological contraction. There is a very sudden break with the pre-war imperial discourse. And we have a whole episode, 16 or 17 episodes down the line, in which I'm going to talk about this at great length. Okay, here's just sort of a preview. Uh, the preview of what happens after 1945, uh, this is the discourse that we live with today. This is why I sort of want to include a quick summary of this in this episode. While the uh, uh, imperial discourse of we're a Mongol race that came from everywhere 
and we're very proud of our mixed blood. While that's fresh in your mind, I want to just sort of refresh your mind about the discourse that prevails after 45 and today. As recently as 1942, the Ministry of Education in Japan issued the following statement, quote, The great Japanese empire is neither a state based on a homogenous nation nor a country based on nationalism. All scholars agree. (laughs) I like that. All scholars agree. There's no doubt whatsoever. All scholars agree that our distant ancestors were Tungusids, Mongolians, Indonesians, and Negritos. Also, the number of people who became naturalized as Japanese is large indeed. Japan took these various peoples in, and they intermarried and merged. That's as late as 1942. During the U.S. occupation after 1945, Japan will be carved up in accordance with the ideals of the nation-state, which says... The way to achieve harmony in the world and prevent interstate conflict is that uh, we recognize uh, unique racial groups that have existed for, you know, uh, since time immemorial, and we uh, find a way to give each one of these racial groups their own political entity, their own plot of land that usually bears their name, um, and they have some form of self-rule, either as an independent state or as an autonomous region within a larger state. Okay, that's the nation-state ideal. Korean should be in Korea, Chinese should be in China, uh, Japanese should be in Japan. And if you do this, you will take away the factor that leads to conflict, which is ethnic groups bumping up against one another. That's what is imagined to create conflict. Okay, Multi-ethnic Japan was literally stripped away in an instant in 1945. There was no effort made with the encouragement of the United States occupation authorities. No effort was made to encourage the Taiwanese, the Koreans, or anyone else who was living in Japan to stay in Japan and think of themselves as Japanese as they had been led to believe for the past 50 years. Instead, they were told to go home. One day you're us, one day you're not. In fact, the very idea of ethnic plurality, of being a Mongol race as a good thing, was entirely discredited by the war. Look what all that expansion and mixing brought us. It brought us to this miserable defeat. The new geopolitical agenda was that the United States wanted Japan as a stable, peaceful ally that provided a non-controversial foothold in Asia. So the new discourse that was created to support this was that Japan was originally a peace-loving, homogenous people with a benevolent emperor and no ethnocultural aliens. They've always been homogenous since the beginning of time. Why did we want to invent this discourse, which flies in the face of all historical evidence? Well, the belief was that if nation and state align perfectly, no intermixing, then there's no cause for conflict, and the the Japanese will have no interest in expanding beyond their their own borders, because they're a perfect nation state. This is, they repudiated the multi-directional migration theory. All the Japanese should want is the Japanese home islands, nothing else. Just like it's always been. Now, the beauty of this new discourse is that it required the Japanese empire to be portrayed as an evil aberration that was caused by a takeover of military fanatics who made the mistake of expanding the Japanese race beyond Japanese political borders, incorporating new racial groups that then naturally come into conflict with one another. And so you had to ask the question, what went wrong? And this was the question that was asked, and that scholars like me, with PhDs and you know tenured at universities in the 1960s and 70s, they held conferences called you know the Japanese Empire. What went wrong in grad school? I had to read a book uh, in one of my grad classes on the Japanese uh, uh, you know uh, uh, Japanese minor field I had to do, and the whole book was a, uh, a a book that was published as the conference proceedings, and it was titled What Went Wrong. The Japanese Empire couldn't be explained as a natural consequence of, you know, imperial expansion, trying to gain more resources, and then the conflicts that they bumped into with other empires had to be explained in racial terms. And the solution to this was the solution, conveniently, that the United States was presiding over during the Cold War. Uh, we've returned Japan to its natural, peaceful, homogenous boundaries kicked out all the aliens who were never supposed to be there in the first place, um, and now it's going to be peaceful. And this is the new gospel that everyone has to subscribe to, and that we all are indoctrinated with and inundated with, with anyone who doesn't actually read the scholarship that shows that there's no such thing as a Yamato race, and that all these things are inventions that evolve over time. 
Okay, uh, like I said before, in the 1960s, this myth of a homogenous Japanese race that's always existed, um, isolated and, you know, doesn't go to war and whatnot, um, and that's nat Japan's natural state, and anything that's not that natural state it means that something wrong happened, and how do you fix that wrong? In the 1960s, this myth of the uh, uh, Japanese homogenous race was explained as uh, uh, why the Japanese were able to embark on this economic miracle. The 60s Japanese economic miracle was explained by the homogenous nation state. That's, how, that's why they work so well together. <laughs> and we just fixed what was wrong to fix Japan. And now look, they're flourishing under our stewardship. Let me finish off with a wonderful quote from 1982. From Kamishima Jiro, a political scientist, reflecting on the changes in ideology that he had, he had lived through himself just in his own lifetime. In 1982, all right, just what, uh, 37, 38 years or whatever after the end of the empire. He's still alive. He lived through the empire. And he says the following. He says, in pre-war Japan, everyone said that the Yamato nation was a mongrel nation, a mixed nation. However, after the war, something very strange happened. People, including the progressive intelligentsia, began to insist that the Japanese are a homogenous nation. There is absolutely no foundation for the claim. But this baseless theory is rampant. I can't add anything more to that, all right? That's your eyewitness testimony of a Japanese scholar who lived through the empire telling you your, uh, himself. Uh, this was an ideology that they taught me when I was young, and now they've completely changed it. They've done an entire 180, and they say that we're something else. If that's not an effective illustration of how the concept of race exists in our mind and is subject to the whims of our ever-changing uh, 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 agendas and interests in life, I don't know what else is. All right, next time, we finally move beyond domestic affairs, incorporation of internal aliens, neighboring islands and whatnot, um, and ideology to actual external substantive expansion beyond the immediately neighboring islands into places that were already a part, formally a part of other states, or they were independent. Please join us next time as we examine the birth of the Japanese Empire, 1895 to 1910, in episode 45 of Beyond Huaxia. 